Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Heavier Than I Look. This is the seventh episode, which is crazy to believe. We are almost at two months into this podcast. Super exciting, though. Also crazy to believe that we are almost done with the semester. I think we have just over a month left until, or maybe actually a month, yeah, because I leave November 18th from South Bend to go back home. So just a month left, which is so crazy. It's going to be a hectic couple weeks, but it this semester has been one for the books, for sure. <laughs> um, so as you guys know, this is Heavier Than I Look is a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. And I hope you guys know by now, my name is Kira, and I'm your host. Today's episode dedication is for any of those who have suffered from or continue to struggle with OCD. I believe last week was OCD Awareness Week, and so therefore today's episode is dedicated to anyone who has struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder. As we've talked about a little bit before and as we will continue to talk about in future episodes, OCD and, and eating disorders like really truly go hand in hand. I think the statistic is something like like 69% of those with eating disorders also suffer from comorbidity and like off and also have like a co-occurring disorder whether that's like an anxiety disorder, you know, OCD, panic disorder, any of those. So they really truly do go hand in hand. And there are statistically higher rates of OCD for those who suffer from or have suffered from an eating disorder. So they are entangled. And this week, OCD Awareness Week, is meant to raise awareness and understanding about OCD and offer people greater access to evidence-based treatment and resources. Again, this episode, which is why this episode is dedicated to all those who have suffered from or continue to suffer with OCD. So today's episode topic is eating disorders in quarantine which obviously, as you guys know, very relevant topic, very pertinent to what society we're living in today and what I'm sure we'll continue living in for quite some time. And this topic, this subject of the episode was entirely deserving of its own episode, so which is why I wanted to dedicate the time today in order to discuss this in more depth. The stuff that I'm going to present today and talk about we're still in quarantine, more or less. So the studies, the research, the evidence about eating disorders in quarantine is still very limited, as you guys know. And it's hard to study something like this when you're living through it. But what we do know, I will share. And... This is a common theme that we touch on in a a lot of episodes, but eating disorders thrive in isolation. They thrive in silence. They thrive in this private shame. They thrive, therefore, in quarantine. Which is why we're going to tackle these subjects more in depth today. So quarantine... As I'm sure you all are well aware, you have this rigid social isolation, right? You are told not to go outside of your home, 
to limit social exposure with others. And then when you are social with others, to wear a mask, to be six feet distant, to be extra careful in terms of contact with others. And all of these guidelines, you have the overarching theme of just being isolated from one another. Our interaction with one another is limited. Our sense of companionship, our sense of self can be distorted because our social interaction is is so limited and is so narrow. And this rigid social isolation came about in what seems like overnight. <laughs> um, so you have this rigid social isolation, which not only can be a breeding ground for eating disorders, but it also is against just generally like human nature. Humans are social creatures. We are hardwired to situate ourselves among others. And quarantine goes against those natural inclinations of humans. You have the absence of social support. You have sedentary behavior. You have all of these things that quarantine demands and requires. And it's necessary in order to mitigate the risk of, you know, a virus and a global pandemic, but does not mean it's going to have, like, it does not mean it's not going to have some serious, serious health consequences. And during quarantine, or really before it started, and this we're going back to March now, I think like seven months ago, which is so wild. 2020 has felt like an entire decade rolled up into one year. But seven months ago, back in March, when in the United States quarantine started, many people had to change their living situations going into quarantine. So moving home. So moving to a specific location where you just had to hunker down for however many weeks and months and the endless days and nights of quarantine. Um, And all of those things can present a whole host of triggers left behind for any of those struggling or have struggled or recovering or any of those things with disordered eating. And not only is it just a change of location, But that change is abrupt. When I tell you, it literally feels like overnight. Like it literally feels like overnight. My friend and I actually, I think it was like March 10th or something. We were coming back from Los Angeles after having visited another friend who lives in in Pasadena. And on the car ride there, you know, we were talking about COVID and just briefly. And, you know, we all were like, yeah, there's no way. Like we're going back to school basically. Like this this thing, you know, who knows? <laughs> but this thing, honestly, it's not going to affect our lives. Like at least, you know, th- this is what I was thinking. I was like, I don't really even know what coronavirus is. Uh, and I don't think it's going to affect whether or not I go back to school. And so we kind of came to a consensus like, all right, see you guys in a week. Or I think it was like five days at that point before we were to go back to school because we were on spring break. And my friend and I, who also lives close to me at home, um, got on the same flight from 
LAX. I believe it was to JFK, but it may have been to LaGuardia. Anyway, we get on the flight. I turn my, you know, my phone on airplane mode and just like ignore all messages and whatever. And I pull out my Kindle and I'm like, I'm just like in the, in the mode, like reading and it's like a six hour flight. So it's, it's a pretty long flight. And then of course the three hour time difference and we land in New York. My friend and I get our bags, we get off the plane. All of a sudden I check my phone and I have like 20 like unread messages, like three phone calls, uh, like hundreds of news reports. My friend and I talk about this to this day. We feel like we landed in a completely different world. Like it felt like we traveled in another dimension in the plane ride into a completely different world because all of a sudden schools were canceling, telling kids to pack up their stuff and go home. And this, you know, this is just what's happening to college students. But everyone was told to restructure. It was like this upheaval of our lives. So it was very disorienting landing to all of those things. It was like like adrenaline inducing as well because you never think that something like this is going to happen to you. But it was wild. It was wild. So again, it's a change of location. It's an abrupt change of routine, of schedule, of independence, I know, for a lot of college students. And this abruptness can aggravate stress. Predictability and consistency are out the window. Not only with consistency with eating in terms of having their art like already set in stone, healthy, comforting eating practices prior to quarantine. Now all of a sudden you need to change your location and you also need to change your routine. So not only with consistency of eating, but with consistency of care. And what I mean by that is when we unexpectedly have to just leave where we are, completely change locations, a lot of people lost, you know, counseling or support or help that they needed because of the lack of social interaction, the rigid social isolation, because of just, you know, a change in location, like, If you were seeing someone in in one location and then you had to fly home, perhaps like across the country, seeing that same person to help with your care and your recovery is that much harder. Thank goodness this global pandemic happened in a time of digital innovation because we were able to, I wasn't, but many were able to uh, like construct like the telehealth model of therapy which proved to be there's studies showing that it proved to be very helpful um there's a couple of things we'll talk about with its specifics in terms of eating disorder recovery but that's a completely different model of therapy the telehealth model so people You have to leave the stability of counseling, of therapy, and you have to switch to an online format, which is jarring in and of itself. 
So overall, your rhythm has suddenly changed. You're in a new environment with potentially triggering factors, with old family dynamics, perhaps, inconsistency of care, and for those suffering or recovering from an eating disorder, disorder, they can feel trapped. Those with eating disorders are now at home 24-7. If there was no escape from food and triggers before, there's definitely no escape from food and triggers now. And this feeling of being caged at home 24-7 manifests itself in different ways with different eating disorders, but can result in the worsening, the development, the re-arrival of eating disorder practices and behaviors. Um, So anorexia during this time might tell us that the food shortages or rationing is purposeful and to take advantage for such to lose weight. Individuals with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, otherwise known as ARFID, is might you know might tell us um, like reduced access to safe foods. Like there's no more safe foods, and thus let's not eat. And ARFID, for those, just a reminder, it's characterized by stalled weight gain or weight loss in addition to limitations in type of food consumed. So it actually does not involve fears about a body shape or size, yet involves severe fear surrounding certain foods. So specific types of brands, just specific types of food categories. So those who struggle with ARFID already experience difficulty achieving adequate dietary variety and volume, and they may experience reduced access to those safe foods potentially leading to further malnutrition. And then bulimia or binge eating may tell us stocking up on food in the quarantine pantry style is dangerous because of the possibility of dangerous compensatory behaviors. This stocking up can trigger binging, followed by compensatory behaviors such as self-induced vomiting, laxative misuse, fasting, excessive exercise, which is even harder because we are generally stuck inside. And without the exercise component, component, there may have been alternative coping methods, helpful or un- unhelpful, that contributed to individuals adopting other unhealthy compensatory behaviors, such as greater caloric restriction or other mes- mes- methods of purging. You also have just in general with any with any of these eating disorders and with anybody struggling during this time, you have like family conflict. As I said before, a lot of people had to move home just abruptly and suddenly. So there's a heightened emotional arousal. Depression and anxiety can come up. The likelihood of increased self-harm. During the COVID pandemic, there's been an alarming surge in domestic violence and child abuse. An individual's access to domestic violence and abuse resources, methods for reporting, and sources of refuge have been limited by the physical distancing measures. And as we talked about in episode three, trauma and triggers, domestic abuse and child or domestic violence and child abuse are traumatic events. 
which again can contribute to the worsening, the rearrival, the development of an eating disorder during COVID. Also, people might struggle with food insecurity or unpredictability. There's a scarce inventory. People are panic buying. Whether that's sanitizer or toilet paper or specific types of food, people are panic buying. You know, there's rationing of food almost in certain places. And just in early estimates of the pandemic's effect on food insecurity, these rates of food insecurity has, have risen exponentially, just in early estimates. And I'm sure we're going to learn a, a lot more about that further on, but just in early estimates, some exponential increase. And just in terms of, like, evolutionarily speaking, during this time, our bodies are preparing for survival mode, right? It's that panic-buying mindset of let me stock up on all of these things because I don't know when I'm going to be able to access these things again. So our bodies and our minds are preparing for survival mode, which an eating disorder survivor faces almost daily. So it's this double dosage of survival mode that can be incredibly detrimental. And any kind of external restriction, such as the rationing of food, such as quarantine, such as all of those guidelines about like a global pandemic, all of those things, those external restrictions, in addition to the internal restriction that eating disorder survivors often place upon themselves. Again, it's a double dosage of survival mode of restriction perhaps and therefore can be that much more detrimental because our body our bodies are prepared for like a feast or famine pattern of living and if we believe it's a famine we're gonna our bodies intuitively involuntarily will prepare to sustain itself for as long as possible during this during this you know, time of, of survival. And shopping for food now becomes an anxiety-inducing journey. The masks, the physical distancing, the washing every single product you get from the, from the grocery store. Now we've kind of learned a little bit about how that maybe wasn't necess- necessary. <laughs> because I remember during the beginning of quarantine, my dad and I normally would take a trip to the grocery store with, like, and then get the stuff that we needed, head back home, and, like, just wipe down every single thing and perhaps, like, keep it outside for, like, a full 24 hours before bringing it inside. And now I, I don't really think those methods are needed as much just because we know a lot about how the virus is transmitted in the months that have have passed since the early quarantine. But just shopping was, just shopping for food was just so, like, anxiety-inducing. You have, like, a limited window to shop for food. 
There's also empty shelves, as I said, with the panic buying of stocking up, long lines. And now all of a sudden, grocery stores become scary. And <laughs> welcome to the world of an eating disorder survivor, <laughs> where grocery stores are scary places. In addition to all of these things, and as I'm sure you guys faced yourself, it's this tremendous stress, it's turbulence, it's unease, there's unforeseen hardships, immediate concerns for safety and survival, a loss of control, which specifically is pertinent to eating disorder survivors and a resurgence of their symptoms. You are told where to be, where to go, who to be around, And what to do with your life. So we have a lack of control about how to live our lives. Paired with the lack of control that generally exasperates the development of an eating disorder, this can be very dangerous. Jessica Gold, a psychiatrist at Washington University in St. Louis, who treats patients with eating and other mental health disorders, says, When the world feels out of control, people want to have control over something. Often, it's what you put in your mouth. So people who have struggled with eating disorders before are yearning for something to grasp onto that is familiar because the world is unfamiliar. And eating disorder thoughts are familiar. So they're going to grasp onto that. And they're going to, like, like uh, Jessica Gold said, they're going to control what they can, and that's what they put in their mouth. But that's, that's, that's what they eat. You also have, during quarantine, and this is in the later months of quarantine, after a couple of months sheltered in our homes, you have these, this media messaging of weight gain. And all of a sudden, we're bombarded with, well, just generally during quarantine, we were bombarded with incredibly stressful media coverage, and especially in an election year as well for the U.S., you're already just bombarded with incredibly stressful media coverage. And now all of a sudden with a pandemic going on, it can lead to psychological distress, disordered eating. Because of our exposure to disaster-related media. And then you have what's called the COVID-15 or quarantine 15, which are both plays on the freshman 15, which is what we talked about last week, which refers to the 15 pounds that students presumably gained during their first year of college, but as we talked about last week, has, is not true. It has some validity, but really it truly is, is not true. Um, so then this quarantine 15 is like just shrouded with shame. You have this weight stigmatizing content. You have the before and after, you know, body pictures that send the message that having a higher body weight, living in a larger body, is intolerable. And we got to be in constant control of what we're eating and of what we're exercising and what we're doing to exercise. Which is kind of crazy to believe, considering we literally were in a global pandemic. Nobody in, our, in this world, like, has had to deal with a global pandemic. Right? So, like, why, why are we worried about what we're... Like, what, how much weight we're gaining? <laughs> like, seriously, why are we worried about that? 
there's just like this fear mongering of, of waking during a major life event, which obviously a global pandemic is. Like the fact like, oh, I, I gained 15 pounds in quarantine. Like that was just shrouded in shame and just this. This like weight intolerability, weight gain intolerability. Um, which is kind of crazy to even truly think about. But especially for those who have suffered from a requirement from an eating disorder because the fear-mongering of weight gain is a unique risk for individuals with eating disorders because it, it lends to this like perceived controllability of weight and the subsequent blame placed on those who are viewed as unable to control their weight. And this cultural messaging, and this really kind of touches on like weight stigma and weight bias and like weight gain stuff that we talked about in um, episode five, which is culture as an ideological factor in eating disorders. And all of these cultural messages that we're receiving through our phones, because we're spending a lot more time on our phones we're stuck inside right and that's our primary method of like communication with other people all these cultural messages all these media messages emboldens people to feel justified when they target persons in larger in larger bodies which actually is very dangerous and also not good for like obviously it's not good for people in who live in larger bodies but it also like regresses like their behavior if that makes sense so weight stigmatizing public health messages elicit less self-efficacy to engage in healthy behaviors than do more positive health messages and such exposure to the weight stigma in public health even results in a higher intake for those with the higher body weight perhaps because of higher amounts of cortisol. But as you can see, like if we have these positive health messages, people in larger bodies gain some self-efficacy to engage in, you know, quote, unquote, healthy behaviors versus the negative health messages that in fact can result in a higher intake for those living in larger bodies or with a higher body weight. And people who internalize negative weight stereotypes and devalue themselves because of their weight, which deals with a lot of, you know, which really, you know, points to a lot of eating disorders, not all of them, as we saw with ARFID, but a, a majority. This might be, these people might be particularly vulnerable to such messages as they can report lower self-efficacy and greater self-blame for their weight because of the perceived controllability of weight. And as we talked about in a couple episodes prior, weight stigma is the bias or stereotyping of a certain person because of their size. This can be in healthcare, so on social media, as we all saw during quarantine, or in their own homes. And contributes, this weight stigma, weight hate, contributes to the development of, or worsening of eating disorders. 
The National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, reported a nearly 80% increase compared to a year before in calls for help during certain months of quarantine, which is telling of the dire mental health crisis our country has faced since the pandemic started. An 80% increase during some months of quarantine versus a year before in calls for help. NEDA CEO Claire Misko told USA Today that the pandemic has created an elevated sense of anxiety for everyone. For people with eating disorders, it is even more pronounced. And Misko even talks about the cultural messaging on social media, as we had talked about before, which has also affected the members of the eating disorder community. And this cultural messaging comes in the form of social media messaging. To fill the void left by physical distancing, many people are logging an incredible amount of hours online, which just in general leads to increased negative self-talk. The more you're online, I mean, this is, this is correlated, it's not causative, but the more you're online, the more perhaps you negatively soft self-talk to yourself. And also the culture messaging that we were seeing during quarantine was largely fat phobic because of the before and after, because of the perceived controllability of weight, because of the fear of gaining weight, the fear mongering of weight gain during quarantine. Interna- the International Journey of Journal sorry, of Eating Disorders revealed that during the first few months of the pandemic, many individuals with anorexia reported restricting their eating more. And then others with bulimia and binge eating disorder reported more binging urges and episodes. So again, we're seeing just a resurgence of eating disorder occurrence during quarantine, especially those first couple of months, by NEDA, by the International Journal of Eating Disorders, and also a crisis text line, which is a nonprofit organization that provides mental health support by text, saw a 75% increase in conversations about eating disorders in the two months since March 16th. So you have all of these, in some ways, like telehealth organizations geared at helping those with psychiatric disorders, with specific eating disorders, etc. They're reporting humongous jumps in conversations and calls for help about eating disorders. As I said before, NEDA, an 80% increase in certain months of quarantine compared to a year before. And Crisis Text Line, a 75% increase in conversations about EDs. These numbers are not to be ignored. Those are incredible, incredible jumps. And a vast majority of those textures of the Crisis Text Line, 83%, were women, and more than half were under the age of 17. Eating disorders do not discriminate. So the fact that a lot of these texters were women or under the age of 17 does not give us a wider picture of who eating disorders affect. In fact, there was a reported increase in eating disorders in midlife specifically with women with children. So they've had new roles thrust upon themselves during quarantine. Not only do they perhaps have 
their own job, their own career, but now they are an educator and a full-time child caretaker. Their kids are home 24-7, which I'm sure is incredibly time-consuming, and familial responsibilities become the priority. So recovery and symptom management for these women in midlife who have either dealt with an eating disorder or are recovering from one falls to the wayside. There's not enough time to care for those needs. And there's also this pressure, and these, this is part of the cultural messaging, this pressure to be productive at all times during the crisis. Not only are you to adjust working from home or emerge from unemployment on, on just completely productive, but you also have to prove that you're not able to succumb to quarantine-induced weight gain. So this increased emphasis on productivity, self-improvement, can increase ED risk both directly through the social promotion of eating disorder behaviors and indirectly through increasing achievement-related stress. You also have all of our essential workers. And all of the above, all that we just mentioned, can be especially pertinent for those required to go to work during a global pandemic. You face substantial burnout after months and months of, of working hard and being some of the only ones working outside of the home. There's, there's um, research of post-traumatic stress for a lot of our essential workers. And even it's further isolation because of the potential exposure to the virus. So they want to protect their family and friends, so they isolate themselves even further, which can exasperate these symptoms. Also, for people of color during this time, it wasn't just a global pandemic. It was like a racial upheaval. Like, you know, our society... And it's still coming to terms with these things. But our society has this increased attention to systemic, institutional, interpersonal racism. Which obviously can have an adverse effect on the psychological well-being of black, indigenous, and people of color. As we saw again from episode three, Trauma and Triggers, police brutality, as we saw firsthand this summer, is a form of trauma. And this trauma can cause a reawakening, a worsening, or a development of disordered eating. Now, obviously, this is to say that quarantine looks very different today than it did seven months ago. Or even, it looks very different today than it did three months ago, to be completely honest with you. At least in my little bubble here at Notre Dame, social distancing and mask wearing has kind of become the norm on campus. And we've been able to venture outside more and more. Like, in fact, I'm at college. <laughs> I, am, I have been away from home for two and a half months. So if that's not telling, then that quarantine has, has really taken a different form. Then I don't know what it is. There's some protective measures that, you know, you can use to, to, to mitigate against and a worsening or reawakening or development in eating disorders. This is specifically for people in recovery. And obviously quarantine looks different than it did a couple months ago, but I feel like these things still apply. And they include structuring your meal times, 
structuring your rest times, engaging in gentle movement with compassion that will support your recovery, limit your media consumption, engage in positive valued activities that enhance your self-esteem, promote a positive engagement with non-weight or shape-related life domains, so building a skill, revisiting a forgotten one. Also, be vigilant. You know, track your emotions, track your changes, track symptom management. Give self-care time. Just as you would give, you know, rest time, like devote time specifically for self-care and to be vigilant of these things. In the long term, we don't know what effect a global pandemic will have on the millions of sufferers. In the short term, we know that individuals with eating disorders may be more vulnerable to facing adverse effects from COVID-19. And this is especially relevant to those who have struggled with anorexia because of the, in some cases, the emaciation and their comprised physical health. Although it's not yet clear to what degree these individuals might be affected. Unprecedented has become the word of the year. And we're all still trying to figure out how to make this work. And I don't have all the answers, but no one does. But this is just kind of what we have found in the seven months since the global and since quarantine started and since we've been dealing with the global pandemic. And as last week episode as last week's episode was, I want to take the rest of the t- our time today to kind of focus on my own experience with quarantine. So it's kind of a hybrid episode as as well as a, as a learning one. A crisis such as COVID-19 can help reset behavioral patterns and for some people represent an opportunity for positive change or personal growth. I must preface this section by acknowledging my privilege in order to have felt safe, to have felt secure, to have felt healthy at home. My quarantine, ironically enough, was a time of great healing and recovery, which it was the opposite for many. I'm privileged to have had a safe space to call home for many months. I'm privileged to have had food, economic, and relational security of which made healing possible. Not many can say that, especially looking back at quarantine and living in quarantine. And I'm really grateful that I was able to say that. And although there's definitely a lot of attention that needs to go on this like global mental health crisis, my recovery is something to celebrate. And there were kind of multiple chapters of my recovery during quarantine, as there were multiple chapters of quarantine and different phases that it took. And the first one starts in March and April. So I'm home like March 11th, I believe. And from that point on, I was taking my classes online. I had like two or three classes a day. Before even going home, I one of my protective measures that I set up before going home because I knew home was a place of many triggers, was to have a very consistent meal plan to eat three meals a day, snacks, very consistent, what I wanted to eat, when I wanted to eat, 
to just kind of like start like a refeeding process almost. So the classes, the consistent meal plan, and I was reading obsessively. So my life was predictable and calm. I was given the freedom to be myself with my family. My relationship with everything else strengthened immensely. So during this time, March and April, those two months, I was comfortable, I was safe, I was healing. We go into May. This was a time of a lot of unearthing of some past demons, which I really devoted a lot of time to. And I was meeting it with a counselor every single week, giving the time necessary to look back on all of these things. And I believe it was in May when I went back through all my old journals and charted literally every single moment I mentioned food or exercise or anything body image related. And I went, it took me like hours, but I went through all of my old journals, noted every single time I said something like that, and then reflected upon it. So that was very restorative as well in terms of my recovery. And it's what I used for episode two. In June, I felt like it was like a bit of a transition period for me. I had come to terms with who I was both on the outside and on the inside. I was very happy. I was very content with all that I had done in healing and recovery. And I worked towards an equanimity otherwise unfelt. And there was just like this immense sense of pride. I felt restored. I felt productive. I felt I learned to communicate in a better way with myself and with others. Felt good. Another kind of transition in July was when I started working. So July is when I actually started like venturing out of the house a little bit more because I was pretty sheltered for the first couple of months. But July, I had a job as a camp counselor. So I started working with kids. So I was working with peers my age and kids. And I was initially like not really sure how it was going to work, especially because I hadn't really seen a lot of people in a long, long time because of quarantine. So I was initially like, oh my gosh, like what is this going to be like? I'm going to show up to work and I have to work with the kids. (laughs) Like, what? And these kids have been stuck inside forever. (laughs) So I was very concerned about what this would look like for me. But I loved it. Kids, I think, just demand a certain kind of open-mindedness and spontaneity, of which I felt I was in dire need of practice. So I, I found myself reveling in the amount of time I spent with them. It was really helpful. I was able to have fun, enjoy myself, rekindle friendships, you know, with coworkers, with these kids. And it was great. I mean, this definitely came with a lot of stress and anxiety because after like three, four months of being inside and only being surrounded by like a certain number of people, I was now hanging out with like so many different people. But how I handled it was I kind of rode the wave. The stress and anxiety would come. I would acknowledge it. I would let it be where it was, but I would ride the wave until it disappeared. Reminding myself that these feelings would pass. These challenges forced me to confront my goal of being present. and, And really just establishing a sense of presence in my life. And then... 
during July, kind of just continued, you know, working and just really like practicing like spontaneity and open-mindedness, which was great. And July was the last month before I went back to school. I went back to school August 3rd. So actually August 2nd, I think I left. And I just had so much like liberty I felt in my life, which was great. And I, at one point I did kind of regress into some more restrictive habits, but that was rectified pretty immediately. And these things are going to happen as we talked about before with relapses. But, and as, also as we talked about before with like triggers, like me being able to fit in old clothes. I talked about this last episode, last episode, me being able to fit in old clothing that had only fit me during certain points in high school or certain points when I was pretty thin was kind of jarring. And I had to deal with that in a very profound way. But those things obviously were kind of looked at more in depth. And during the time in May when I like unearthed a lot of these past demons, it was really helpful to have that as a foundation to then build upon. And as we talked about extensively in August of, of this year, I kind of relapsed again. But if you want to learn more about that, <laughs> go ahead and look at episode Number six, eating disorders in co- on college, college campuses. But as I said, I, I kind of created this balanced Kira that relied on food for happiness, for laughter, for time with family. I also just didn't have like my screen. Like during Lent, I get rid of all my social media. So I didn't have any social media for quite some time during quarantine. So I was unplugged and disconnected, which was great, which was great because I didn't really have to deal with those fear-mongering messages of weight gain during quarantine. And I cultivated a sense of love and forgiveness and mercy for myself in the past. Like I said before, the 15 handwritten pages that detail my entire eating disorder journey. I brought like a lot of love into those spaces and forgiveness into those spaces while also being attentive to my emotions. And I started intuitive-led restorative eating. So consistent, repetitive meals, eating in the same location without distraction, framing it as a moment of gratitude, of mindfulness, of companionship. And by May of of 2020, so after two months of kind of going all in, my appetite had lessened greatly. But again, there was this open communication between my body and I in terms of eating and movement. And it was like a freedom I had long forgotten. So it was kind of wonderful. And I, during this time, I formally structured a web of meaning for myself in which I understand myself and my role in the world. And I did a lot of like discernment and vocation in terms of what I want to do. And as of right now, it's like become a representative storytelling freedom and choice. And studying intercultural media literacy and 
my curiosity in, in the intersection of culture and media and those things are fascinating to me and that's what I want to continue to discover. There are many projects I had during quarantine. As I said, I was reading obsessively. I think I read upwards of like 50 books, which for someone who loves to read, like was so blissful. I also structured, like set up my own bookcase. You know, I got, I got the hard helmet and the tool, tool set out. And it's a display of something I'm proud of, right? An aspect of my identity. And I wanted that in my room. I wanted that on, on stands. I wanted to recalibrate my sense of accomplishment, which was great. So as you can see, there's the self-forgiveness. There's also some moments of really profound faith in building that up. And we can discuss that more in depth in another episode. But just recalibration of self, of self-definition, of sense of accomplishment, of willpower, of remedying my like identity, and also with movement as well. My movement from this point on like needs to progress my recovery and be mindful and me like existing outside of myself. And like I said, I you know I definitely had trouble because there were visible changes to my body after four months of healing. And I remember thinking my, to myself and I looked back at my old journals in preparation for this episode was, do I weigh myself? I had not weighed myself for many, many months. And I was like, is this the time to step on the scale or will this be a regression into unhealthy and painful behavior? I faced panic when seeing photos of myself because I couldn't place myself on the spectrum of bodies that I've inhabited over the years because I didn't have the objective measure of weight to determine where I fit or how much I had recovered. And in one journal entry, I wrote about this fight kind of in my head between stepping on the scale or using my pen to write how I was feeling. So I debated between these two things after about four and a half months of healing. The scale would grant me a definition of how thin or worthy I look or looked, yet it would leave me probably feeling not enough, ruin the kind of weightless streak that I have going on, and not allow fun memories to be formed. The pen would give me a chance to work through my feelings and document the obstacles of recovery as I continue to heal mind and body. And I decided the pen was the way to go. I wasn't going to allow myself to step on a scale again and regress. And I was a moment of strength in my recovery in quarantine. And it's similar to what I'm trying to do now in a different format, of course, but in a different sensation. Instead of like writing the pen and like visualizing it, I'm hoping to do a similar thing with this podcast. This is my voice. This is what you're hearing. And I'm choosing this voice over my eating disorder voice. Which has come up and continues to come up and continues to live inside my brain. But I'm choosing my voice instead. So just to reiterate, my quarantine was unlike many others. I'm incredibly lucky to not have relapsed or worsened in my eating disorder journey. From this point on, Borrow my hope. 
when you can't believe in yourself, borrow my hope for you. Recovery, it's possible. It's hard. Don't get me wrong. It's hard, but it's worth it. Now, as we transition into the outro of this episode, I want to share a poem surrounding body dysmorphia. And this poem was written by Anna Paula, who is also like in the Instagram community. So I saw this poem on someone's story and it really resonated with me because I felt like it accurately reflected my own experiences with body dysmorphia, which we haven't talked about a lot. And it provides an interesting glimpse into the mind of one suffering from body dysmorphia. But this is, so this is a start of talking about body dysmorphia. And the poet's name, Anna Paula, you can find her on Instagram at annapaula.auglarv, I believe. I'm going to spell it for you guys. So at A-N-A-P-A-U-L-A dot A-G-U-I-L-A-R-V. So definitely check her out. And this is her poem. Some days, dysmorphia gives my eyes gives me my eyes back. Some days, it makes me see what I've lost. It makes me remember all that I had. Some days, it lets me realize how much I've lost, and I'm not talking about my weight. Some days, it lets me realize I've lost my life. I lost weight, and everyone congratulated me when in reality they were just applauding the fact that I can't see real life anymore. I'm so consumed by my dysmorphia that when I see my weight, I think the scale is wrong. They're happy I'm healthy now, when in reality it's the sickest I've been in my life. Oh, dysmorphia, let go of my sight. Let go of my mind. Let go of me, please. I'm begging you. Don't let me wake up some days only to see what I've lost. Let go of me and let me be free. It was an amazing poem. Thank you so much, Anna, for allowing me to share your tremendous poem on HTIL. Again, feel free to reach out to her at her Instagram at annapaula.augularv and let her know how much you loved her poem. Next week, we're going to discuss more in depth the entanglement of recovery and relapse, which was a topic suggested by one of our Instagram followers. And this kind of will put into, like, will unify the last two episodes. So we talked about eating disorders in quarantine, which was my recovery, and eating disorders in college, which kind of deal with my relapses. So those two things entangled and combined and talked about more in depth in next week's episode. So listen in on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you missed the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own story of anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia, you can listen on any of these platforms. And please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those you feel could specifically benefit. If you are interested in learning more about eating disorders, please visit the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA website at nationaleatingdisorders.org. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support and recovery and consider seeking treatment. And if you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. 
And if you would like to interact with the podcast further, you can follow us both on Instagram and Twitter at Heavier Than I Look. And if you're interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message at Heavier Than I Look on Instagram or Twitter. Don't be afraid to reach out. We would love to hear from you guys. And finally, let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. All right, guys, goodbye for now. Have a wonderful week. I'll see you guys next week.